You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Esha. Today, we have a very special guest, Mamad Azizov, who is a student of economics and a top-notch anti-imperialist who's going to talk to us about the history of Azerbaijan. So the first thing that probably most Americans don't know, but we will be sure to put a map, is where is Azerbaijan? It's north of Iran. I'll just answer that question, right? Yes, it's it's sandwiched between Iran and Russia, and it's on the western shore uh, shores of the Caspian Sea. Okay, so let's just do the basics. What language do you guys speak at home? We speak Azerbaijani language, which is uh, similar to Turkish, Turkmenian. Ah, okay. It is a Tur- Turkic language. And it's a majority Islamic country, right? Uh, majority are Muslims, but I wouldn't say it's an Islam. No, no, I'm sorry. What's the they, I meant the major religion is Islam, is what I was trying to say. I'm sorry. Yes, the major religion. Yes, exactly. The major religion is Islam, but uh, at the same time, Azerbaijan is the actually only country among Islam, uh, Muslim countries that uh, more than half of the population are like um, are irreligious. They 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 believe in. Uh, let's say, Islam's God, but uh, do not do anything in practice. And the one thing I learned about Azerbaijan is that your Aliyev, uh, he's the tallest world leader. He stands at six foot six. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, he's the president. He's yeah. the president. Okay. I thought, uh, yes. It's kind of funny because uh, I was just looking at this and the Turkish leader Erdogan, he's very tall. And then I looked at him next to him and he's much taller than him. And it shocked me. And so I had to look it up and it did say that he was the world's tallest leader. Well. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the history. So what was Azerbaijan in the 1800s? Is that where you want to begin? Just want to make sure. Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, this is exactly where I want to begin. Okay, go ahead. Uh, the reason why I want uh, to begin there, because uh, at the beginning of uh, 1800s, Azerbaijan was part of uh, Persia, which is now Iran, and uh, there were a uh, Russian empire uh, did have uh, two wars with Iran over uh, over the South Caucasus, where Azerbaijan is uh, situated, where located. And at the end of these wars, in 1828, they signed an agreement and South Caucasus went to, to Russia. So, till uh, let's say 1870s and 1880s, Azerbaijan was just uh, like a southern border of Russian Empire and very underdeveloped region. During 1870s and 1880s, they were well. Okay, uh, Azerbaijan is was like always uh, very famous for its oil resources. Yeah, the oil. Dri- Oil drilling there is uh, like it started from the first information, let's say, written information about this is from the third or fourth century. So it's like really ancient tradition of oil industry in the region. But after Russians uh, seized the South Caucasus, the uh, the oil fields in Azerbaijan uh, became the ownership of the Russian Empire. But during the 70s and 80s, Russian uh, 
Qatar decided to first lease uh, the oil fields and then sell them to whoever wants uh, it. And uh, actually, this is the period where we can put the starting point of Azerbaijani modern history. Because uh, during the 70s and 80s of 19th century, after these decisions of, uh, from Moscow, big foreign investments started to flow into Baku, uh, to its oil fields. And uh, in a very quick period of time, they changed the, the whole face of the city. Baku was a very small place. It, it wasn't even really a city at the end of the 19th century. But as uh, the foreign investments, uh, foreign oil investments started to come to Baku, the working class uh, uh, like come to an existence uh, in the city, uh, the working class which were working in, uh, in the oil fields. The foreign, Russian uh, and, and capitalists from other, let's say, nations were running oil fields there or uh, factories, etc. So in a very quick period of time, at the big, already at the beginning of 20th century, like 1905, Baku uh, from, became from a, like, a small uh, fishing town uh, to the third city of Russian Empire after uh, St. Petersburg and Moscow. In Baku, oil production was such huge that uh, at the beginning of 19th century, in 1900s, like in the first decade, it already surpassed the oil production of the United States. And in a couple of years, uh, during the same decade, the first decade of 20th century, Baku was already producing more than half of the world's uh, oil. So this was a period of also of a very active political participation of especially the working class in the Russian Empire. Uh, the same was uh, about Baku because there was a big working class and they were uh, like politicized during their uh, during this period. The during the first Russian Revolution in 1905, Baku became. Hold on. Um, uh, slow, slow down. People don't know what the first. Russian. I've probably talked about it, but okay, we can we can talk without Russian without mentioning it. What I wanted to say is that the first collective uh, agreement between uh, workers and employers and capitalists, let's say, uh, the owners of the oil fields, the, uh, in, in the whole Russian Empire, the first collective agreement between workers and uh, employers was signed in uh, in Baku. We call it Mazut Constitution because it was signed between workers of oil production and owners of these production sites. And then this happened in 1905? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, how did things change with the Mazut Constitution? Well, things changed because the workers now had an agreement. They had like more rights than before. Uh, so it was a large victory for them uh, during that, and not just for workers of Baku, but for the, the revolutionary movement in uh, Russia as a whole, because uh, at that time, uh, neither Baku nor Azerbaijan was, weren't sovereign, they were part of the uh, Russian Empire. Uh, so, and, and the uh, political forces active in Baku, together with the local ones, uh, let's say together with political parties of Muslims, of Armenians, of Georgians, of other ethnic or political, uh, let's say, groups. The majority of political forces in Baku at the time were identically the same 
people or the same forces which were let's say in St. Petersburg or Moscow like they were uh, Bolsheviks in Baku they were uh, left and right social uh, socialist revolutionaries in Baku they were Mensheviks in Baku like the, you can find any party that you can in Baku you can find in Baku like in, during these years that you can find in St. Petersburg or Moscow, because basically it was the, like, after the industrial region, uh, the biggest industrial region of Russian Empire, which is which was between Moscow and St. Petersburg, the biggest industrial site, which was the oil production site, uh, was in Baku. So for that reason, Baku was uh, very much important to all political forces fighting for their sake in, within the Russian Empire. So Stalin wrote this really adorable piece. It's very corny and adorable. Uh, basically, on Valentine's Day, the Tsar tried to do a Baku, like a mess. Where we, I can't remember where, but it tried to provoke a fratricidal war in Baku. But everyone mm-hmm. instead gathered at some cathedral and promised to love one another forever. That was so cute. <laughs> it's romantic. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> very much. <laughs> By the way, Stalin himself was like did uh, participated in an organizing work of Bolsheviks in Baku. Uh, he uh, he was active uh, both in Georgia and in Azerbaijan. He organized the protests of uh, workers in uh, of uh, I guess the uh, factor of Rothschild in Batumi. But he was very active in Baku as well. He, he, and uh, actually, he even he was imprisoned in Baku. Oh, really? Uh, Yes, he, he he was in Bayou prison in 1910. Uh, was that when he robbed the bank? It, no, he when he robbed the bank, he was sent to uh, he was sent to Siberia, I guess, or he wasn't even catched uh, because yes, he wasn't even catched because when he robbed the bank, they robbed the bank. He continued. He went to Batumi. He organized a report, a, uh, yeah, a demonstration of workers in Rothschild uh, factory. And after that, probably he came to Baku and was imprisoned there. But he was able to run out of there. Yeah. Also, the uh, as I know, as far as I know, the only illegal uh, print house of Bolsheviks called the Nina Print House was also based in Baku, which is still there, but it's like in not very good condition because the authorities do not pay enough uh-huh. attention to that. Well, they don't see this uh, history as part of their own history, so... Aww. Yeah. Yeah. Um, after 1905, of this uh, agreement... So there was a big massacre of the workers in 1905 that the Tsar did, and it was very cruel. But there was an agreement. What yes. happened there? In agreement, uh, as I said, like it was the first uh, collective agreement regarding which set the working hours, which set the... Salaries, wow. said other. Yes, it was the first such uh, like collective agreement between between workers and employers. Then after that, like till nineteen seventeen, till October Revolution, Baku was one of the probably most like the most active places, one of the most active cities in the whole empire. The uh, all all political forces for uh, kind of trying to to strengthen their positions among workers and. Uh, now the classes, now the social groups, let's say, the oil working, uh, the working class like work of oil uh, production was the biggest population in the whole city. And yeah, the 
the another major point in this uh, history of the first decades of the 20th century is, of course, the uh, 1917 October Revolution. The next major event in what I can uh, call it as the next uh, major event after Mazut constitution in Baku uh, was uh, in 1917. Before that, uh, I said uh, all political forces, uh, revolutionary reformists and other political forces, both local and uh, which like the headquarters, well, let's say in Moscow, in other places, which were organized mainly in other places, all those political forces were trying to strengthen the, uh, the positions in Baku because oil was very, very much uh, important. It was not, Baku was not only important to uh, political forces in the Russian Empire, but uh, the, the foreign forces as well. Uh, this is the period where the First World War was going on and uh, Baku was important for both sides. So uh, I will talk about the uh, Ottomans and about the British involvement in Baku. Please. Uh, but before that, but before that, in 1917, uh, after February Revolution, Baku, yes, I want to talk about, before that, I want to talk about uh, 1917 and 1918. During 1917, Baku was under the government of uh, executive committees of public organizations. It was after the February Revolution in, uh, in Russia and the general situation of the, the government uh, of, uh, of the city or country were stable. After the October Revolution uh, in Petersburg, uh, Bolsheviks in Baku attempted to uh, take power, but not take power directly, but through Soviet, because there was a Baku Soviet, and but Bolsheviks were trying to strengthen the power of Baku Soviet, uh, under, like against the power of uh, executive committees of public organizations. And after uh, some 10 days of uh, October Revolution, Baku Soviet actually became the, uh, the government of, uh, of the country. Uh, in elections held, on, uh, held in uh, December, Bolsheviks uh, were the, the largest group, but not the majority, uh, together with like left SRs, right SRs, Tashnaks, who are Armenian nationalists, uh, Musavitists, who are Azerbaijani nationalists, uh, Mensheviks, etc. Um, this uh, rule, con- uh, the right asserts uh, the Tashnaks, Musavitists, and others, who, like the except Bolsheviks and uh, left asserts, all other powers were against giving the government in Baku to Lenin, or like let's say ac- accepting the government of Lenin in Petersburg. So. It continued without it uh, until uh, April. In April uh, 1918, uh, the uh, Baku uh, Soviet, uh, the, the commissars of Baku Soviet, the uh, Bolshevik and left SS commissars of Baku Soviet, they seized the power and they declared Baku Commune. Uh, it was the second such a commune after Paris Commune, and they also nationalized oil which was very much important for the ongoing civil war in Russia. Who used to own the oil before they nationalized it? The oil, yeah, that's a good question, which I forgot to mention. The oil from, uh, from the end of uh, the last decade of the uh, 19th century were, was owned by uh, either, local or, uh, either local or foreign uh, companies such as 
Rothschilds or Nobels or Russian, uh, some Russian uh, oil magnates or Armenian oil magnates or Azerbaijani oil magnates. So it was owned privately by by the oil oligarchy, if it, if it is accepted to put it such a way. In 1918, it, in it, the first time in the history of uh, Azerbaijan, its oil was nationalized, was nationalized by Bolsheviks, by uh, by the 26 People's Commissars. The leader of these commissars was uh, Stepan Shonyak. So I heard in Russia, in Tsarist Russia, they were trying to force everyone to speak Russian and didn't have local education. Like, is, was that still also true in Azerbaijan? Was there much infrastructure education before the Bolsheviks? Mm, there were very, very few schools, like probably some uh, 5% of the population was literate. Wow. And, and they were mostly, of course, the, the, the upper classes. Uh-huh. And uh, some of these oil magnates, as it is a matter of prestige, they were uh, opening uh, like schools, like there was... Uh, schools for girls, they were, uh, like other schools mm-hmm. for, for like Muslims, non-Muslims, etc. Mainly, yes, like during uh, Azerbaijani society, Azerbaijani, uh, like, oh, the, the, the whole population of Azerbaijan mainly was, uh, became literally during the during 20s and 30s, especially during 30s, there was a, lo- a program launched on the Stalin's government to, uh, to end the illiteracy in Azerbaijan. Like in in other countries as well, but in Azerbaijan also. Okay, but sorry to distract you. So you were going to talk about the British involved and the Ottoman involvement. So let's go back to that. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So uh, you know about Azerbaijan, and you know that recently Azerbaijan had a war with Armenia, and uh, actually these uh, ethnic conflicts in this region are not the some uh, novelty of the 21st century, but they were there like uh, 100 years ago as well. So this, you can find small or big skirmishes, or like even some massacres uh, from both sides during uh, 1917 and 1918, but they were also Bolsheviks from both sides. Uh, Armenian Bolsheviks and Azerbaijani Bolsheviks, and I said the name of uh, the head of the Bolsheviks, the head of the People's Commissars of the Baku Commune at that time. Uh, he was uh, an Armenian descent, Stepan Shaumian, in the two, in like in the, within this, uh, among these uh, 26 commissars, there were people from uh, other nations as well, like Azerbaijanis, Russians, Georgians, even Latvians, but uh, but yeah, that was the, the situation, and like uh, you can imagine that Baku was a very, very international city at the time. Okay, so uh, the Baku Commune lasted from April to July, to precise, from 13 April to 25th July of 1918. In July uh, of 1918, right SRs and Dashnaks and Mensheviks mainly, they raised the question of inviting British to Baku. This occurred because Ottoman Empire already seized some territory of Azerbaijan and they were sitting uh, in the second biggest city in Ganja, which is some uh, 300 kilometers uh, away from Baku. And the British in Iran at the time was on the uh, British troops were there in Iran and the Armenian Nationalist Party, uh, together with uh, with right uh, socialist revolutionaries and Mensheviks, they came together and they decided to make such proposal and to go on uh, voting. In this period, uh, as you know, is uh, 
period of uh, it's, there is an ongoing war. Uh, there are uh, food shortages, especially in Baku. Uh, this is a period where, where if you remember, Stalin is a commissar of Astrakhan, uh, of, of not Astrakhan, but of uh, of uh, what later became Stalingrad and now is uh, Volgograd. It's our, uh, Oh, yeah, that's right across the, in the map, it's, uh, what is that's it? That's right. Caspian Sea, right? The, no, on the north of Caspian Sea, exactly, exactly. But other regions like the North Caucasus, the uh, eastern shores of the Caspian Sea, were not under the power of Bolsheviks, but mainly either under Mensheviks or, uh, or directly English control or, uh, or other like uh, mm, so right socialist revolutionaries, etc. So th there were like many, many problems because of the war uh, in Baku, so, such as food shortages, etc. Especially there were problems regarding, the, uh, this, regarding food. This is still 1918? 1918, yes, uh, uh, of course. They, 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 probably the same, uh, more or less the same situation was in 1917 as well, but as Ottomans were already in, uh, in Azerbaijan and, and occupies such part of it, it and plus to that uh, shortage, food, food shortages uh, in Baku, uh, there was a fear that like if Ottomans can't come or they block uh, all of our road, like food supply roads, there will be a major problem. So, so some forces decided to invite uh, English troops to defend them against Ottomans. Bolsheviks were against that and as the voting as it and but still like they uh, they held a voting and with uh, as i remember with just 13 votes of difference uh, the Mensheviks slash nexan uh, social the right socialist revolution is won uh, the voting so it was decided to invite uh, british troops to baku Bolsheviks were against that and that's why they resigned the commissars i mean they were later put uh, into prison by the British troops, but later they were uh, freed uh, with the help of Red Army uh, members and uh, put to the ship and sent to Stalin's city. But uh, unfortunately, they were... Is that Tbilisi? Not, not, no, no. I, I mean this, the, the Volgograd or Stalingrad, the Tsargrad. I'm sorry, I got, yeah, yes. it used to be Tsar, it used to be named after the Tsar. Yeah, sorry, I got confused. It used to be Tsargrad or, yeah, something like yeah, that, this Tsar, exactly. But unfortunately, on their road, there were uh, um, some, let's say, traitors in, in, in sheep, and, and the commissars, they didn't know, like, they didn't know how to nav navigate, of course, uh, like, uh, at the center of the Caspian Sea. So uh, those uh, other uh, guys, let's say, who were uh, in charge of uh, taking the ship to the city, they took another uh, destination and brought uh, commissars, 26 commissars, to the region which was under control of Mensheviks and right socialist revolutionaries was to help together with uh, British troops, and they were executed there. Okay, so first, let's come back to Baku. There was a decision to uh, invite English, and they uh, invited British troops from Iran. But British troops uh, came with a very, very small people, ammunition, etc. So it was very visible that uh, like they are really 
they are interested, but they don't want to pay much or like to lose much because they see that the Ottomans are here and they are in much more probably favorable position. After that, in August, like they were, uh, they kept the power in Baku. The British troops kept uh, the power in Baku only one month. In August, Ottoman offensive started and. They took Baku, they uh, stayed there uh, in, in Ganja, in the second city, for uh, one year. Uh, during that time, uh, the Musawat-led uh, coalition was in government in Azerbaijan. Musawat is for the Nationalist Party of Azerbaijan uh, at that time. And yeah, and uh, during this period, the, this uh, government lasted 23 months, actually at maximum 23 months, but uh, to precise, till uh, 1920, 1920s, uh, 28th of April. During this period, it is two years, all reforms, what, uh, what the Baku Commune uh, did, all of them were cancelled. Oh my. Uh, the, oil, the oil fields were uh, given back to the uh, oil, uh, ah. oil companies. The, the Bolsheviks also, also did the land reform. They uh, also... Uh, Can you explain to people what land reform is so they understand? Yes, they, sure, sure, sure. Uh, they, at the time, you know, Azerbaijan, the big, whole land, actually, they uh, were, uh, they were under the ownership of the the so-called kulaks, the social class, which, uh, which was, uh, like, which which was owning the majority of land in the country. And the, in this, in the territories of uh, where uh, the government of Baku Commune was, they had to reform and they uh, distributed the lands to the people, like equally. Uh, uh, okay. They didn't, they didn't create it kolkhozes, but they distributed the land equally. So before it used to be like for Americans, I would say it was a lot similar to maybe sharecropping in the United States, and then they changed the structure, right? Before the reform, the land was the like certain individuals, the big lands, mm-hmm. and the reform like uh, distributed it uh, much equally as it could under the, the, the like own circumstances. But uh, after the counter revolution, the reform was cancelled and all land was uh, given back to the previous owners, like to to this class. Ah, so it was given back to the feudal, uh, I guess, lord. Yes, yes, yes. During the uh, reign of the nationalists uh, between 1918 and 1920, when either Ottomans or British troops were uh, were on, on soil. Okay, so we're at 1920, and they gave. So back- together with, so together with, the, there were two reforms, uh, major reforms during Baku Commune, like or nationalization of oil and land reform, mm-hmm. and those two reforms were uh, cancelled, and uh, all the property was uh, given back to previous owners during when the revolution fell, after the revolution fell, and uh, the, the the other nations came to power. Wow. And how many people were killed? I know that in Siberia, we learn about the Kolchak who like, I don't know, he's just murdering everyone left and right. So were there a lot of people killed here too? Well, in Baku, this story about killings is a bit different. Uh, they were, okay, if uh, probably we can start from uh, the first, uh, from, from March 1918. Okay, go ahead. In January, in order to speak about March, I should speak about January. In, in, Jan, in January 1918, there was a, a case where 
Azerbaijani nationalists, they meet uh, some thousand soldiers in a city called Shamkhor. These were soldiers uh, which, uh, to get with the call of Bolsheviks to uh, stop to fight, they stopped the fight and they were basically deserting. And those nationalists, they took their, their guns, uh, their rifles, etc., and they killed uh, all those more than thousand uh, soldiers. Wow. So after that, it was the, the time when uh, Baku Komun wasn't uh, announced, but the Bolsheviks were uh, the biggest power in Baku Soviet. So the Bolsheviks were really afraid that there was a, like, a, a bloody counter-revolution, so they started to prepare. And the same preparation was actually on the side of, uh, of, of Muslims as well. They were either uh, supported by Ottomans or uh, supported by Muslim uh, oil uh, magnates. The same preparation was among the population, I mean, Armenian population in Azerbaijan, because, because like traditionally, uh, on the ethnic or religious grounds, they always were uh, some big or small massacres, like by one or other party. So on March uh, 1918, the fighting erupted. The fighting started. It actually. As, I, as for uh, Ronald Gregor's, as for the book uh, called Baku Commune of Ronald Gregor's Sunni, uh, it is it was started from the Muslim side, but in a short period of time it, it, it was like finished because they didn't have such big ammunition and they uh, called for a ceasefire. And and yes, it, so it's uh, who were fighting there. On one side there were Muslims and on another part side was the government, the, the Bolsheviks and left uh, socialist revolutionaries, uh, but they need uh, to make a coalition with Tashnaks, with Armenian Nationalist Party, because they had a, a, an organized military troops. So together with them, they, with them, they started to fight with Muslims and they win in a very quick period of time. But the as their government also was not that strong and it as it's, it is seen from the fact itself that they needed to go to the coalition with Armenian nationalists, they didn't have uh, much power to stop the troops of uh, the Armenian Nationalist Party, Dashnaks. And those Dashnaks, they went on and they like did a massacre of Muslims. They even killed Muslim uh, Bolsheviks in the city. And uh, and they were like many, there are many cases that commissars like Shaomian or other like Aziz Bey of, uh, or others were hiding their Muslim comrades uh, in their own houses. Uh, so such was the situation. Uh, when Ottomans came in August, they did their like part. They did their massacres, surely against Armenians. So it, the massacres were in uh, in August and in September in Baku, in Gurchai, and in couple other places. I don't know really the numbers from uh, those mass massacres. Yeah, but uh, but such was the situation. After 1918, Ottomans stayed in Ganja, the second city uh, of Azerbaijan, and, uh, and, and they stayed there for uh, another year. During this period, it was basically a period when just like the government of oil magnates was re-established. If to be honest, if like to try to uh, to understand the class division and the 
and the class character of uh, of this government between 1918 and 1920, uh, I can finally say that it was basically very similar to the one which was before the government of, uh, governments of Bolsheviks and socialist, left socialist revolutionaries. Mainly, the it was a a, a comprador bourgeois government. Because why Comprador and what bourgeois? Because the most valuable thing in Azerbaijan and in Baku was its oil fields at that time. And these oil fields were under ownership of mainly of foreign capital, of uh, Nobel, of Rothschild and others. Before, uh, like I guess at the beginning of the 20th century, those oil magnates, they created their own council in order to, uh, to deal with the oil businesses. And the Nobel uh, was chosen as the head of this council. So it, this was the leader guy, and then uh, Rothschilds and uh, and others. But they were also uh, Azerbaijani uh, oil magnates as well. So yeah, that was exactly their government. That was exactly their political force, which was in government. And we can see it from the cancellation of reforms or what was done afterwards. The Bolsheviks continued to work under the government of Musavat during this time. Some of them even were in parliament. There were a couple of parliamentarians, Bolsheviks as well. Um, in the in 1920, there was a news in the city that the police killed Bolshevik in the police station and then they uh, saw him away near, uh, near the shore. Like, as I remember. And this erupted protests and like during very small period of time, big demonstrations started to happen. Baku workers were quitting their jobs, uh, joining demonstrations. You said they were put into something. What, what were they put in? Quitting. I, say, I, I said workers were quitting, like quit their jobs and they joined demonstrations. Ah, got it, got it, got it. Recruiting. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't hear you. Yeah. And during was, of course, the Bolsheviks were uh, like the Bolsheviks of Azerbaijan were in uh, contact and relation with Bolsheviks of other cities in Russian Empire already at that time, not the Russian Empire, uh, but uh, like with, with such cities as Moscow, St. Petersburg, etc. In 1920, during 19, uh, in, in April, the train called International, the International, or Second International, probably Second, no. Just international, okay. The second was in 1914. Okay, go ahead. Yes, yes, yes. But I, uh, I just didn't couldn't remember the name of uh, either. It was the third international or uh, the name of the train. I mean, <laughs> uh, or it was just international. Yeah, probably it was just international. The, this train was uh, the train, like the military train, was sent uh, to uh, for to help the revolutionaries to help the demonstration in Baku, and in they crossed the border uh, on 27th of April and uh, the in, on 28th of April. Actually, on on their whole way till Baku, there was a small resistance against uh, against them, mm-hmm. and uh, on 28th of April, the Bolsheviks uh, declared that they they uh, they seized the power in Baku. And yeah, that's it. After that, uh, the second time Azerbaijan oil was nationalized and the Soviet period uh, starts. During this period, as in the whole Soviet Union, uh, there was held a huge industrialization. The same passes of collectivization were uh, held in Azerbaijan. Ever find yourself asking, what is to be done? How about giving us a five-star rating on iTunes? 
or if it's Sunday, catch our live streams on Twitch, Rockfin, and YouTube to learn more about feline friend and revolutionary Vladimir Ilyich Ulanov by tuning into our Sundays with Lenin. Or if you're looking for all of our podcasts and newsletters, go to historically.substack.com and read some theory, as the kids say on Twitter. Don't worry, it's not really theory. It's about theory, so it is what is to be done. I'm going to ask you a slightly strange question, but do you know about the very first, I'm a big fan of electronic and industrial music. So uh, yes. uh, in 1922, Baku had the first concert, right? Yes, yes, yes. Can we talk about that? Invest- I'm not that much informed about this, but I know that in 1922, uh, Baku was the first city where the uh, industrial concert uh, was held. This was done by Russian musicians uh, with the help of, um, as I know, some industrial sites, some cars, etc. Hold on. Let me share the sound if you can hear it. Yeah, this is the song where the, which is actually sung by the city itself, the industrial sites, isn't it? Can you hear it? Uh, um, Indeed. Okay, so after kicking out the British and the new Ottoman government, the Bolsheviks renationalized it. So, what happened after that? Um, the period of like Azerbaijan was in the uh, as part of uh, Soviet Union from 1920 to 1991. The very similar passes of uh, industrialization, collectivization were held in Azerbaijan as well, especially. Um, there, like we can, uh, we can, we have very like many films about the process of uh, collectivization, which was organized in such a way that uh, not the regular troops were uh, fighting uh, against those kulaks, those uh, landowners, big landowners. And how did they? Where did they find their troops? The landowners, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I was talking. That, I was saying that it was not uh, the regular troops uh, the, of of Red Army who was fighting against Kulaks. The uh, Soviet government didn't decide, didn't want uh, it to go this way, but they wanted to be solved this problem uh, in in terms of uh, of civil or civil, let's say, uh, in terms of the resistance of people themselves, and that's why they. It started to weaponize uh, people and uh, set military trainings. And uh, as far as I know, there were real big involvement of other participation of Azerbaijani youth, both, uh, both women and men, uh, in, this, uh, in these trainings. And they, there, there were many such uh, fightings erupted in, min- in several cities of Azerbaijan during uh, the End of nineteen end of nineteen twenties and especially after nineteen thirty, they very the the kulaks were uh, finding their troops. I don't really know, but probably they like they, the kulaks were wealthy people, so uh, surely they had 
money to attract people. Ah, so okay, so they hired mercenaries. Yes, sure, sure. From from like either their own village or uh, like let's say neighboring villages. Wow. So we're now in nineteen twenty. What what year are we now? Just making sure. Yes, in at the beginning of nineteen thirties. Okay, at the beginning of nineteen thirties. And at this point, what we do know is that Hitler comes to power, and he really wants these oil fields in Baku, right? Yes, 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 yes. Yes, he wants. Uh, there was uh, an operation Edelweiss, which was aimed to the eastern. The Eastern, actually, front, the Eastern operations, in the Eastern front, there were two major uh, operations of the Nazi army. One was, uh, like, going to uh, Stalingrad to take the city. The other one was going to take the uh, oil fields of Baku. Because Baku was very important, and actually Baku, during the first year, at least in the first years, uh, supplied uh, some 90-80% of, uh, of all uh, all Soviet army. I can check it, but it should be so. But the city didn't fail uh, to Germans. So we were still in the 1930s. What year did Hitler try to invade Baku? Yeah, why did he uh, wanted to invade Baku, you ask? Yeah. Uh, because of oil, of course, we, because because of oil supply, yeah, because he needed this oil in order to continue operations in the east. Oh, okay. So he wanted to either he either he had to go to uh, Turkey, invade Turkey, and to reach uh, oil fields in Iraq, mm-hmm. or he had to go to uh, directly and uh, reach uh, reach Baku oil fields. Okay. Can you talk about what Azerbaijanis did to resist Hitler? Like what happened? How the World War II played out? Yes, sure. Uh, okay, uh, but uh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to distract you. If you, uh, you were still in the 30s, so let's finish the 30s and then we'll go to the 40s. No, no, no. Like I was talking about politicization and that uh, more or less how it was held in Azerbaijan, and it all surely successfully was finished, and all the class was eliminated. Um, after that, uh, the like we could talk about the the second world war. Yeah. Uh, the in the second world war, uh, Azerbaijan like totally uh, lost some. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, three hundred thousand of Azerbaijani citizens were killed during the second world war. Ah, uh, during uh, okay. So did Hitler end up invading Baku or did he fail? No, Hitler. Uh, Hitler failed. They won't. Through operation of Edelweiss, they wanted to reach oil fields in Baku, but when the Nazi troops reached the South uh, Caucasus mountain, the, the, the North Caucasus mountains, the oil workers already uh, started to burn the fields oh, in Baku. Wow! So that's why they just uh, forgot about it and it turned they were Oh, okay. So the oil workers themselves were resisting. Sure, like people were like Baku was under attack actually during these uh, years, like several times, uh, like yeah, uh, air attacks were held uh, against Baku. But uh, the people also who are understanding the importance of the city and of the oil industry was for the Soviet Union, uh, the, the Red Army, and its attraction by by the Nazi army. So yes, I I, I mean I am not sure like the, the burning of the fields uh, held directly by the people themselves or like by some directive but that was the outcome uh, so the operation was basically failed 
without even breaching the city. And after 95, Baku, uh, as like other cities uh, of the Soviet Union, was to be rebuilt, it was like was started to be rebuilding again. Especially what is important, uh, it is the oil ro- rocks of Baku. You can Google and look at some nice pictures of that. Uh, the, during Stalin's period, after the war, the very big project in offshore uh, started and they constructed a city where uh, the oil workers will live. This is uh, some uh, 15 kilometers away from the shore. So it is in, inside the sea mm-hmm. and it's, it is still uh, now there and it's still used, mm-hmm. but this, this time mainly by foreign oil companies, of course. Uh, but yeah, it was, uh, it was built Joseph Stalin uh, and the building started in 1947. Yeah, it, it was first such uh, such project and actually it as I know it couldn't be repeated to build such a big place where like thousands of uh, oil workers can live in the middle of sea Wow uh, the, yes this was one of the last gifts of Stalin's era to Azerbaijan so yes um, I just cannot remember any such big events till uh, 1991 uh, it well in Azerbaijan it was the same case but it was in other uh, like in whole USSR the one of the um, maybe uh, worst to, it would be worse to mention that uh, when after the the 20th Congress, uh, where the Khrushchev uh, denounced the Stalin's era and the the period of destalinization started. You said the period of destalinization started. What does that mean? Yes, destalinization is basically uh, erasing, or well, for Khrushchev, it was the solution to for the democratic deficit in the country. What does that mean? Uh, but really, this was the just denouncing of all uh, was done by the Stalin's period and the period when uh, Stalin became to be drawn uh, or portrayed as uh, as a bloody tyrant. Uh, oh, okay. First time. He, yeah. You know what's really funny? He predicted this. He said, right after yeah. I die, uh, history will put mud over my grave. But 50 years later, the winds of time will sweep the mud out and people will understand what I did again. And he's right. Yeah. And uh, what is interesting actually for me, it is that after this uh, announcement, let's say, and, and start of the politics, new politics in the USSR against Stalin against and uh, for like erasing the, the, the all what all of his period, like what reminded to Khrushchev about Stalin probably. Um, in 1963, uh, in during the May Day demonstrations in, uh, in in an industrial city called Sumgai, it is very near to the Baku. Mm-hmm. To Baku, um, some people started to. It was uh, told to the people that uh, it is not allowed to bring uh, Stalin's portraits, uh, just because the 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 Politburo uh, or uh, yeah the Central Committee doesn't want it, which was now had by. Uh, led by Khrushchev, but people, some people decided not to agree with that, not to fulfill it, and they bring with them Stalin's portraits and, and flags with uh, Stalin's uh, portraits, etc. And they started to 
uh, work uh, together with it in 1963 during crucial reign, and uh, the police started to uh, detain some of those people to uh, either to attack them. And after uh, after that, uh, the protests erupted. People started to protest against police. They burned up the police car. They attacked the police station and took it like holding uh, the uh, Stalin's portraits and demanding their right to at least care <laughs> the uh, portraits of Stalin on May Day protests and demanding or like resisting uh, against this politics of de-Stalinization of, uh, of Nikita Khrushchev. This was one of the very interesting events for me uh, during the post-Stalin uh, era of the Soviet Union in Azerbaijan. So, um, uh, why did Khrushchev want to do that? I never understood that. <laughs> well, if if you read Mao, he says that when revisionists came to power, it means that the bourgeoisie came to power. I never understood that as well. Like, what was his personal motive? I don't know. But as a result, what he did, or what he, what in what political um, side he was. To, like after, together with let's say his opposition to Stalin's period, he was praising the coexistence with the imperialist powers. Oh. He was against supporting people's liberation movements and etc. etc. So he, he like in the classic Marxist-Leninist terms, he wasn't a Marxist-Leninist at all because like the person. Was, but I don't know he really believed or not, but at least what he was claiming that it is possible to for the such a country as the Soviet Union to coexist with capitalist imperialist countries. Well, um, it's kind of funny because we did another interview about this time uh, in the United States, and if Kennedy was actually trying to do secret negotiations, like Kennedy didn't even trust his own State Department not to sabotage it. So he reached out to this KGB agent and tried to do a secret negotiation. So things During might Cuban have... During Cuban Missile Crisis, you mean? What? During Cuban Missile Crisis, you mean, probably. No, no. Uh, Kennedy was trying to reach out to Khrushchev to do a peace treaty. And so if John F. Kennedy had not been killed by whoever killed him, Khrushchev might have been able to do that. But he underestimated capital's, I guess, evil. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, but their first relations they with Khrushchev, like their first contact with Khrushchev, started uh, the, around the process of uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. Yes, I remember. Yeah. So, um, okay, even today, Azerbaijan probably has one of the highest polls when they ask, do you want the Soviet Union back? Even today, 87% say absolutely. So what happened? Really? Yeah. Uh, let me show you. Azerbaijan is only second to Armenia in wanting the Soviet Union back, <laughs> if you ask people. What, yeah, what happened after the Soviet Union? No, no, no. Well, you, you, you said you were going to talk about the massacre in 1990? Yes, I can. Well, at the end of 1980s, uh, already uh, ethnic conflicts uh, erupted between like some ethnic conflicts, some small, uh, maybe like uh, skirmishes, protests, uh, anything uh, started to erupt between Azerbaijani and Armenian uh, populations. 
it is worth to remember to remind that uh, both in Azerbaijan and Armenia they were together like uh, they were they were neighbors they were like families who were consist of like Azerbaijanian and Armenian people so uh, there was no re- such real uh, ethnic conflicts like the like in such a level during the 70 years after 1920 till uh, the end of 1980s uh, but at the end of 1980s, uh, it started again. It is really very, very difficult where to put the starting point. If we start to talk about the conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia, the first question will be when it started. And it is really important uh, because uh, where you put the starting point, it actually more or less means, like shows your position regarding the conflict. So you can put it, I don't know, like to some 2,000 years ago or like some 200 years ago or, or, or whatever. Uh, it is difficult to claim that it exactly started here. The first beatings or whatever, like small programs, uh, started in 1987, as I remember in Kafan. And then it continued in other cities, both in Azerbaijan and in Armenia. In 1988, Azerbaijan was a union a republic of the, uh, of the Union of Social uh, so, Soviet Social Republics, right? Um, Azerbaijan was a Azerbaijani constitution and Azerbaijani parliament was, were, uh, let's say, under the jurisdiction of the Soviet constitution. Mm-hmm. And uh, they couldn't change, they couldn't amend any, any part of this constitution. <clears throat> uh, this constitution was claimed or saying that the Union Republics are uh, are under the jurisdiction of the Union's constitution, mm-hmm. and the you know, autonomous republics, autonomous regions mm-hmm. are under the jurisdiction both of the country, of, of the republic where they located, where they belong uh, administratively, and then to, uh, and of also to the uh, Soviet constitution. So they cannot, uh, the Neither uh, the Republic cannot breach the Constitution of the Union, nor the the autonomous republics and regions cannot breach the Constitution of the Republic itself and of the Union in general. Uh, The first legal procedure, which maybe we can claim that it was, uh, at least at the legal level, uh, the beginning of the conflict, was the decision uh, of of Nagorno Karabakh uh, of Nagorno Karabakh Parliament? Uh, they decided to hold the referendum and to become free from Azerbaijan. At the time, they were part of Azerbaijan. Nagorno Karabakh is a per- is a region uh, which uh, is surrounded by uh, mainly Azerbaijani cities, and uh, the population uh, of Nagorno Karabakh itself is mainly and was mainly uh, Armenian. And after 1888, the protests against this uh, started in Baku, and uh, the protests against Baku started in Yerevan. This was actually a process of where the uh, the nationalists and nationalist parties were the leading force of the political uh, atmosphere uh, in countries. So. The full-scale war uh, started in 1992 after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Uh, before that, the 
conflict start the conflict continued in uh, like these like, big small pogroms mm-hmm. there were pogroms in in, in baku in sumgay there were pogroms in uh, in yervan in other cities of armenia so uh, it is really not uh, fair to name one and not to name another because in this conflict and i believe probably in, mm-hmm. in all other conflicts which are religious or like ethnic it's not that much logical to look to search for the for the angel there there's no one angel and it all people at the time were driven by national sentiments or uh, and yeah and they did do really stupid things such as like pogroms such as massacres etc so you can find from both azerbaijani and uh, armenian side uh, claims regarding uh, pogroms and, and massacres and, and and you think like how that happened like 70 years those nations were living side by side and very friendly and there was no any such kind of uh, conflict or such kind of uh such kind of thinking even probably and like the you, the po- armenian population of baku was very very huge and azerbaijani population in yerevan was also very solid so that is how actually some political forces can uh, find some this uh, like small probably unresolved problems and push the uh, their leverage there and create more and more uh, conflicts from there. So I would say that the Karabakh, Nagorno-Karabakh conflict is a purely an, uh, an, an, a product, uh, a side product of nationalist sentiments in, uh, in both countries. And this was turned into the full-scale war in 1992, um, as Nagorno-Karabakh was accepted, was recognized as a... What was it, like the deal they reached in 1992? Not the deal, the full-scale war, they, they couldn't reach any the war still. Oh, war, okay. It was the first conflict. Yes, yes, yes. The conflict changed to like it's like to, to, the, to another phase. It developed to another phase and uh, the full-scale war started there. What happened there? Uh, as I said, the uh, Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous Region, uh, Autonomous Republic was uh, Autonomous Oblast, actually. In Russian, yeah, it's Autonomous Region. In Kao, if uh, in abbreviation, during under the you know, USSR, it was part of like an autonomous part of uh, Azerbaijan's Socialist Republic. Uh, as they started to demand independence, and as it later the conflict uh, like turned into the war, the like this war continued till 1994, and the ceasefire was signed in 1994. Um, it, this the, the war resulted in the war resulted with the victory of the Armenian side, and Azerbaijan lost uh, Nagorno-Karabakh and uh, seven cities uh, surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh. From 1992 to 1993, there was a nation- nationalist government mm-hmm. in Azerbaijan. Uh, in 1993. Uh, they actually also came uh, after the coup d'etat, mm-hmm. but in 1993 they went also with the coup d'etat. Another, uh, like the old, the former Soviet general, the former first secretary of the mm-hmm. Azerbaijan Republic, Haider Aliyev, uh, he ruled the country from uh, 1969 to 1987 and resigned. What's his name? 
Haider Aliyev. Okay. He resigned. Is that the father? Is the father okay. exactly? Uh, he resigned uh, when uh, Gorbachev wanted him to resign in 1987, and uh, he wasn't in power. He came back, let's say, to power in 1993, uh, 1993, yeah. How did he come back to power? Well, uh, there was a coup or a coup uh, threat, and that uh, the government in Baku just uh, fled. And uh, and yeah, just like uh, they... Uh, they just folded? They just ran, and <laughs> and, uh, and Haider Aliyev came to power after months held elections, like some sort of elections and he won and and that's it after that uh, he, he after a year in 1994 he uh, signed a ceasefire not a peace deal uh, a ceasefire with the people in the nakhavark region or with armenia uh, no 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 with armenia because uh, azerbaijan uh, like since 1992 up until now uh, didn't recognize the people of like directly uh, of Nagorno-Karabakh as uh, the party of the conflict. They uh, Baku recognizes only a Yerevan uh, official Yerevan as part of the conflict. Ah, okay, got it. Yeah. So in 1994, they signed the ceasefire, and in 1995, finally, uh, international oil organizations came to Baku. They were in Baku actually in 1992. BP, British Petrol, uh, opened its first office in Azerbaijan in 1992. Um, Norwegian Statoil opened its office in 1993. So they were actually coming to Baku and uh, opening their offices mm-hmm. finally. And 1995, after, and, and they were, of course, uh, waiting for the end of the war because that was the unstable situation. Mm-hmm. Like it, it could make some problems for the oil production as well. Uh, so uh, they were very happy probably for the ceasefire in 1994 and uh, as after a year they signed uh, an agreement, product sharing agreement uh, with Azerbaijan where only 20% of uh, oil was given to Azerbaijan state oil company and other 80% uh, went to foreign oil companies. In a year or two, Azerbaijan sold its uh, 10% shares and then gained some. And at the end of the day, uh, from 1995 till 2017, uh, shares of Azerbaijan or a state oil company of Azerbaijan was just uh, 11 uh, point, uh, like some 11.6 probably percent. So, for example, let's say that they drilled $100 worth of oil then Azerbaijanis only got like about $11 and foreigners stuck out $89. And the biggest shareholder is BP. Oh, mother bleepers. Uh, Yes. mm -hmm. Yeah, this continued uh, till 2017 when in 2017 they updated the agreement. What did uh, it create in Azerbaijan? Um, there is such really infamous thing uh, called Dutch disease. What is it called? Dutch disease. What does that mean? So it was a white Dutch disease because it first uh, took place in Netherlands uh, during 1950s. Uh, when they found an oil field near the near Netherlands, the big amounts of uh, investment started to flow into this sector. Mm-hmm. This process creates, uh, like, uh, on the long run, not actually on the long run, but in a few years, it creates appreciation of real exchange rate 
So the appreciation of national currency, mm-hmm. and which means that the other industries became less competent. Oh, because your currency becomes much valuable, uh-huh. and it means that your commodity which you produce in the country or your exports uh-huh. also become much expensive. So it becomes much expensive. It means that it becomes less competent in, mm-hmm. the, in the global market. So this very process, uh, the, when the, the, the process which started with the product sharing agreement mm-hmm. uh, with, nas- with international oil companies, it totally created a deindustrialization in Azerbaijan. Oh, what does that mean? In other words, it destroyed all industry of Azerbaijan. Ah. If you look at if you look at exports of Azerbaijan in 1990, mm-hmm. before this dissolution of the Soviet Union, you will see that some 95% of exports are industrial, like uh, other than the mining, I mean, other than oil and gas industrial mm-hmm. uh, industrial products. Uh, after some 10-15 years, mm-hmm. uh, already at the beginning in 2000s, uh, you will see that the share of industrial products mm-hmm. are some 10% and share of mining sector is more than 50%. The same uh, continued till actually, so Azerbaijani economy was very much industrialized under Soviet Union, okay? Um, during the 90s, the war made it uh, <laughs> what it can do uh, to the industry, first of all. Secondly, these international oil companies, when they came to Azerbaijan, they don't need to do any other thing together with investing in the oil. This is actually itself enough mm-hmm. to create a start for destroying mm-hmm. the whole industries of the country. And as a result, uh, after uh, 30 years today, uh, Azerbaijan can see the exports, you can see the industrial production of Azerbaijan, and you will see that around 80-90% of exports are oil, gas, and oil and gas-related commodities. And after that, we export only uh, nuts and tomatoes. Wow. So no industrial commodity, basically nothing. And we, as those industries were destroyed during these uh, three decades, we uh, it is so it is not just about exports. Mm-hmm. We actually had to buy these uh, industrial commodities from outside. Wow! So we are basically yes, we are dependent on imports when it comes to to the industrial commodities. Wow! So basically, we know how the WTO works in that raw materials have lower value than industrial materials. So yes. that, that means everyone kind of got poorer? Um, it was very nice. What I, what I can tell you, uh, as I, uh, I thought that, the, uh, like as in, Dutch, in other cases of Dutch disease, in Azerbaijan also the, the national currency uh, became much uh, expensive, I mean, for, for in the foreign exchange markets. For the people... Uh, people were not directly uh, seeing or understanding the uh, what is what will come after that because all the whole industries would uh, like uh, were just closing or shutting down or, like destroying or like like the people like people were selling the some parts of uh, factories just like as a metal you know wow. and 
yeah, in nineties, it was especially in nineties, like during before, or like in couple years after the war, when the food shortages, etc., was there. Uh, my childhood, basically, and uh, in two thousands, uh, it is actually it was, uh, I would say, much better. Why? Because Azerbaijani manat became like it, it was appreciated, and it was like hundred dollars. Uh, no, yes, hundred dollars uh, were just seventy-eight uh, manats. So manats was uh, much expensive than dollar. And uh, if you were earning some even less money, okay, the poverty was really, uh, if not high, but still solid at the beginning of two thousand. But uh, after some years, uh, the government uh, did. Uh, some anti-poverty uh, programs because the and they were able to do that because the revenues from oil was coming more and more. It was not that much impo- uh, that much uh, difficult to live because uh, manat was much more expensive than uh, let's say dollar or other currencies. It was directly equal to euro, and it was uh, it was probably beneficial to buy. Uh, Normal, like usual commodities, which what you have to use, uh, like during a day. But in terms of macroeconomics, in terms of macroeconomics trends, trends, it was just a period before the crisis, and the crisis uh, erupts. In, in if you look at two thousand five, six, or like, uh, yeah, two thousand five, six, seven. Uh, it was like kind of great years in Azerbaijan because the, the oil was very very expensive. Like it, the one barrel uh, was some hundred and fifty dollars, and during this period, Aliyevs became like billionaires. They they just they just pumped out money to offshores, like to Panama, to Dubai, to other places, and like built like you know like islands for them, uh, for themselves. Uh, but uh, after some years of uh, after the uh, depression of 2008, in 2014, uh, oil prices, there was a crash in oil market, and oil prices started to drop from $150 to $50. Uh, do we know why? Do we know why? Yeah, because the United States started to produce oil as well. Ah. It announced the production of oil. And yeah, and it, the price of oil went down. And Azerbaijan, the central bank in Azerbaijan had to devaluate the depreciate the national currency uh, two times. When in two thousand, at the beginning of two thousand fourteen, and in two thousand fourteen, and as a result, uh, now hundred dollars are not anymore seventy eight manats, but uh, hundred and seventy manats. Wow! Uh, so. It was depreciated for more than two times, and as Azerbaijan was uh, highly dependent on not just actually not just industrial uh, commodities, but very much on uh, on like normal like many let's say forms of food as well. We are importing basically everything. This like 2014 and 15, there were big rallies in different uh, cities in Azerbaijan. Uh, which was heavily uh, suppressed by the government, and yeah, that is what I attempt to draw the general yeah history. So about Aliyev, what I can add, Aliyev, the father of uh, current president Haider Aliyev, was the 
uh, was the head of uh, the country from 1969 to 1987. Mm -hmm. He came back to power in 1993 mm -hmm. and uh, served two terms. Uh, and he died actually in 2003. And he was like his his son uh, came uh, to his place in 2003. He became president then, and now it is. Uh, I, I really don't know. Like it, his first term was uh, till 2008. Mm -hmm. Second was two thousand till 2013. Uh, third one, and now it's probably in his fourth term. Yeah, and they are the like the the richest family in the country they own and, and like the the process what like okay the azerbaijani from azerbaijani part it is the state uh, oil company which uh, participates in oil production and we have also an oil fund uh, which was actually like at, at least claimed to be that it was designated in as in as a Norwegian oil fund, but it it didn't rule as such. Mm -hmm. And yeah, this process of transferring money from state oil company to state oil fund and to budget from there is not that much transparent. The fund itself is very much transparent. You can see it is like. Uh, it owns some uh, very, very uh, high ranks in, in uh, the transparency indexes, but not the state oil company itself. And, and yeah, and basically the budget, the country is very much dependent on oil revenues still now. Uh, some 50% of the state budget comes from oil revenues. So he basically turned it into like a Qatar instead of a industrial. Well, we can talk about both Azerbaijan economy itself and the government because there are certain things that they did and they uh, they benefited on uh, such like they say on the collapse of soviet union on the uh, on on the agreement production agreement with international oil companies this made them rich this made them like really very rich and mm -hmm. compared to bourgeois okay there are many many uh, news you can find like investigations about their money laundering about their like uh, i don't know islands in, in dubai about some more than 40 billion uh of uh, wow. finance of finance in panama etc etc so yeah my god that's a lot that's a lot really that's actually a budget of Azerbaijan. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes uh, but uh, together with that, like together with blaming them, uh, it is also important to understand that this process uh, would be more or less the same uh, with any other government under the uh, under the, the, the like on the foundation of the capitalist relation, mm -hmm. because the process of uh, destroying of the industry of the whole country was not was not a sort of uh, decision or directive of some president, leader or whatever or whoever else, mm -hmm. but it was a natural process under the international division of labor of imperialist uh, global market. And well, well, why does that happen? And, 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 and uh, just normal uh, trend of capitalism. Ah, okay. What happened? What, what happened? It was that just those investors, they didn't do anything. They just brought the investors because for them, for the, let's say, uh, for the investors, uh, it wasn't the country wasn't interesting, but the oil and they 
put their money, they invest in oil, mm-hmm. and they they surely they know that uh, this process uh, will uh, like uh, take place in this country, the process of deindustrialization. But why they should care basically because they uh, they like I mean they are capitalists and they want to, uh, to just maximize ah. their cap- capitals, etc. And this very like. Uh, natural, I mean, process uh, within the capitalist relations, this uh, bring the country uh, into like w- w- what it is now, I mean, to, to the country which doesn't have uh, industry, I mean, I can say at all, and it, it, the, the economy which is highly dependent and uh, on a oil market, which is not regulated like by Azerbaijanis, but which is uh, ah. related internationally. So I see. So then it's almost Azerbaijani humans don't have control anymore. Of we, how, how we can control the global oil. You can't. Market. So that's where you lose your control. Yes. So that's why we lose our control exactly. And we lose missiles. Like, I mean, we, we never had a control over oil market, but what we lose, it was our industry in the country. Uh, Azerbaijan was very pretty, like uh, nice, the uh, industrialized country from starting from thirties, and uh, like we were exporting to uh, more than sixty countries in the world uh, industrial commodities, and this kind of country became uh, to a country where like some ninety percent of exports are oil, and next uh, to oil. Commodities are just nuts and uh, tomatoes, cucumbers. <laughs> wow, no, really? That's sad. So, w- where do we go from here? Like, what we learned from here is that Azerbaijan became to the same more or less the same Azerbaijan what it was before Soviet Union. Uh, people are poor uh, on the country, and people were poor before the Soviet Union. And people are poor after the Soviet Union. On the contrary, what people experienced during the Soviet Union. People uh, do not own uh, the resources of the country. And <laughs> so it's almost like a new colony, right? Yes, sure. It is a colony of oil, uh, of oil uh, oligarchs, international oil oligarchs, of British Petroleum and its team. For sure. It's exactly a, a, a new colony. And it benefited, it benefited only those companies and they, they clan, they, they comprehend the bourgeois in its very classic terms. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of funny because right before you, I interviewed Nemanja Lukic. He's another person in our group. We have a group mm-hmm. for Belarus stuff. And he said the same thing about Yugoslavia. And it's like, uh, yeah, you're right. It doesn't even matter who the leader is because it's a system, right? Yeah. Yeah, but the... Uh, I recently wrote a piece of paper uh, on like uh, comparing uh, Azerbaijan and uh, Czech Republic. Uh-huh. They are both uh, they are both like post-socialist countries. They experience socialism and they experience the integration into the global market and like post-socialist trans- transition to market economy, mm-hmm. etc. Uh, we can actually take other countries, either from Soviet Union or other like uh, Warsaw Pact countries, and compare. Try to compare at least, and uh, we will see this very uh, like important point of uh, having natural resources. The Dutch disease 
concept is is just an an, an undivided uh, or like uh, a very like inherent part of natural resources if if you are going to sell them uh, like if you are going to own them publicly if the state is going to own them as let's say the only today the only probably the only uh, because i remember it as the only country uh which is successfully managed its uh, natural resources namely the oil resources is norway how did they do that they did that yeah they found oil in 1969 i guess and they continued it till 1971 i guess and they continued it till now but how they did that if you look at the numbers of public participation of state participation in the industry mm-hmm. in the natural resources you will see that in all decades norwegian state uh, through state companies uh, or uh, owned more than 50% of all industry mm-hmm. and additional to that they uh, put heavy taxes today for example the taxes on uh, foreign oil companies which are uh, active on the norwegian shelf is uh, 78% mm-hmm. i mean you should be that strong you should have a strong uh, i mean like financial farms some financial funds like big money or like strong user power or like you, have, you should be strong mm-hmm. in the global financial markets Uh, in order to have power to do that or you should be just like it is impossible to do that but uh, only norway did that uh, it is kind of funny because uh, the scholars which are mainly interested in uh, like working with the uh, with cases of natural resources they are mainly highlighting the uh, the notion of the democratic governance of uh, Norway as a successful country and they are explaining other countries such as like Azerbaijan Angola or like I don't know other countries which failed to manage oil resources natural resources successfully they explain it to being uh, so they governments uh, being undemocratic oh my but god but in reality in reality it has nothing to do with that okay it surely has uh, something to do with that because the if the state owns the uh, production it should also be uh, enough transparent uh, in order to uh, successfully uh, continue the management of the sector but it is not the primary reason why norway uh was successful and why azerbaijan or angola or other uh so what what is the reason the reason is exactly the state involvement the public involvement that's why it was successful that it didn't sell 90% of its oil as azerbaijan did it sold just its portion ah. and for 50 years like it is already 50 years this year is 50 years that norwegians found oil on their shelf there was not a single there was not a single year that the state owned less than 50% ah, it was that. it was it always owned more than 50% and additionally it also uh, heavily taxes foreign companies like azerbaijan also taxes but it taxes very small like uh, not comparable to the 78% of uh, of norwegian tax that makes a lot of sense Sure. And you, I always believe you should ignore most economists 
in the capitalist countries because they all have an agenda. <laughs> <laughs> Surely. No, but really, if you don't own the industry publicly, where you will find the money to support other industries or to build any, some new industries, you cannot find them. And as you cannot find them, either you will go to, uh, to IMF or to other countries to ask for debt, but during this time, uh, when you will to try to support maybe some parts of uh, economy, uh, like through state support, this period already, what it can do in terms of destroying the industry, it is a natural process. It is not done by someone from the top of, like, I don't know, from someone who has like big power or anything else. No, this is how the capitalism works. If you have a natural resource sector and you sell them, you will fail. That's it. It is just like it was confirmed, like I can say, by all, all uh, natural resource cases, what we and their failures, and also the success stories what we had during, let's say, last century. Well, that is good to know. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It was really interesting for me. Are you on Twitter, Facebook, or any social media? Yeah, on Twitter. Okay, what is your Twitter handle? At Mamat Azizov. Okay, thank you so much. And we hope that we can all have a better world together. <laughs> Where we don't have the... <laughs> we hope. Inshallah. Yes. <laughs> we hope we, we can build a strong resistance for that. And we can, we can take it with our hands. You know. Well, at least the first step is understanding what's going on yes. in other countries. So for that, we thank you so much. And I learned so much. And Yes, thank you very much for the valuable work you are doing. And well, have a good rest of the evening. <laughs> have a nice day. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.